0: Jesus was the first psychoanalyst, the most brilliant psychoanalyst of all time. The whole theory of projection is right there. Why do you complain about a moat in your neighbor's eye when there's a beam in your eye? He's so much of psychoanalytic insight is there in the New Testament, especially in the words of Jesus and in St. Paul. So I became increasingly struck by these parallels.
1: Welcome to Psychology on the Cross. In this episode, I speak to Toronto-based psychoanalyst Donald Carves. Don is not a Jungian, but more of a classically-oriented psychoanalyst. He has written extensively on the question of conscience, superego, or if you like, the inner voices that we are all wrestling with in our individual lives. I had heard that Don actually started off as a union before converted to Freudianism. So I wanted to start by asking you about that.
0: I think age 14, I discovered Eric Fromm's My Encounter with Marx and Freud, I think is the subtitle of that book. I was always trying to keep up with my father, but sometimes he was reading Einstein and and Alfred North Whitehead, and that was a little beyond me. But I grabbed the Freud lectures and immediately started bugging people to try to interpret their dreams over breakfast and whatever. I formed the intention to become a psychoanalyst at that, at that point, about 14. Whenever my father on the weekends would not have a nurse, he was a family doctor, and some kid would fall off a bike and cut his head open. And I'd be playing, I'd be eight or 10 years of age, up, stairs and my father would call me down to the surgery while he was stitching up the kid's head and he would want me to clip the stitches. And invariably I wound up fainted out cold on the floor. This happened about three or four times, but it didn't alter my plan because I thought you had to be a physician to be a psychoanalyst. The crisis came in first year university when I realized there was no way that I was going to Do all of that chemistry, biology, let alone cadavers and rectal examinations. So I switched into social and philosophical studies. And I thought my career as a psychoanalyst was over. It took a couple of years for me to learn that Eric Fromm actually was a sociologist and also a psychoanalyst. When I discovered the existence of non medical analysis then i immediately formed the intention to get a phd and then go to the institute to train somewhere in there even though i actually started off as a freudian i got very interested in jung i was reading a lot of jung and there was an analytical psychology organization in in my city and i started to attend meetings quite regularly i found it of philosophical and spiritual interest, but I was a very troubled young man. I, I I couldn't sustain a relationship with a female because usually there were at least two or three females on the hook at any one time. And this made me pretty anxious and, and made me pretty guilty. And I, I knew that I had, it wasn't enough for me to move through the persona Briefly hang out in the shadow and then move on to what the Jungians in those days were really interested in, which was the archetypes of the collective unconscious. I knew my personal unconscious needed a lot of work. So I reverted to my original Freudianism and I sought out a Freudian analyst. Well, first of all, I sought out a lot of trendy. 1960s therapies, primal screen, transactional analysis, gestalt. They were all a total waste of time for me. I couldn't connect to these things at all. Finally, a psychiatrist who I was with for six months, and we were getting nowhere because he was more narcissistic even than me. Finally, when I quit him, he recommended I try the man down the hall who was a psychoanalyst. I said, what? They they still do that. I thought the couch went out with like the horse and buggy, you know. They're still doing it. He said, "Yes, he's a very good man. I recommend him." So, 6 months later, I called him. Uh, within a week or two of being on the couch, I was not only in love with him, but I was a total convert to clinical psychoanalysis, and he helped me greatly. I subsequently had three other analyses.
1: So, that's a, I stopped reading Jung then. Something that I really enjoy with following your work is that you are not staying strictly with, with psychoanalytic thinking, but you're often grounding it also in analogies that you take from the Bible or from philosophy. And although you, you're you very clinical, you're amplifying material within uh, religious analogies. I was wondering about your interest in religious and spirituality and mm-hmm. how that has yeah developed throughout your life and how it is to to speak about that in a psychoanalytic uh, setting.
0: Well, I mentioned my father. He was something like a deist. He had some vague notion of a higher power, but he rarely darkened the doors of a church. And the backyard of our house abutted the Anglican church. They sent me, my mother, I was in the choir. My mother ironed. My. They sent me... They only came when I was singing a solo or something, you know. My father couldn't make any sense of the whole thing of Jesus Christ. So I, I went to church. It became very important to me. I loved the sermons. We had a particularly good director of the church, and he was a family friend. He was always trying to convert my father. The, the beauty, the hymns the music. I had a good voice. I got a lot of praise for my singing. Things were not happy at home. My mother was drifting into alcoholism. I took refuge in the church. But then adolescence happened. I discovered girls, masturbation, and I discovered in my father's library a book by Bertrand Russell called Why I Am Not a Christian. The combination of these circumstances meant that uh, I was done with my Anglican Christianity. I turned radically away from it. My heroes were all of the passionate atheists of the West, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Freud, Jean-Paul Sartre. And for, you know, 30 years, I I preached the gospel of atheism from my pulpit lectern at the university. But, I remember one year there was a Black Anglican nun woman in my class. She was in her 40s, I would say, and she really liked me. And whenever I would say disparaging or caustic things about religion, she would look at me with her big eyes and I could feel that she was forgiving me. She haunted me through her forgiveness. It was like she She knew I was going to come home one day. Well, she was right. In my 40s, I, I had a reconversion. My father died, it so happened, in a Catholic hospital because he'd fallen and broken his hip, and he wound up in that hospital instead of the heart hospital. And so as he lay in a coma for three weeks, there was a... Crucifix that on the wall right above his bed. And it was April and it was hot. And he would throw off the covers and he was wasting away. And you could see his rib cage through the thin old skin. And I would look, and you know, I, I suddenly realized that's what the crucifix is about. It's about dying, it's about how we all must die. We're all going to follow in this path. And that started something, and then a couple of years later, I got around to impregnating my wife, and I was becoming a father. But I think even before the baby was born, I shocked my wife one day. We were staying in the country, and I got up on a Sunday morning, and I was putting on a jacket and a tie, rare for me, and she wept She wakes up, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to church. And I had to drive into a little town nearby. Uh, She started laughing. Uh, She knew I'd been studying theology for years, even during my atheism. I would go to the bookstore looking for something Marxist, but I'd wind up in the basement where they stored the theology. And I would walk out of the bookstore with eight theological texts, Boltzmann, Bonhoeffer, Tillich, whatever. Reinhold Niebuhr, I mean, I was reading these guys all along. I was so impressed with their intelligence, and I was so impressed with their critique of Freud, because they put their finger on the fundamental problem in Freud, his naturalization of human destructiveness, as if it's an instinct, as if it came from the animal in man, when in fact it comes from what is most unique about man. I knew that. And it seemed irrelevant to the thesis I was trying to write. But it turned out to be completely irrelevant. The thesis I ended up writing was very influenced by by these theological perspectives. So even before I took the step of going back to church, I was very familiar with liberal existentialist theology, John Macquarie reading the Gospel through Heidegger. You know, I was all that was already there. I mean, someone Heidegger would say, The cathedral was already built. It was just empty. But then I went back to church, and the cathedral was not empty anymore. I I caught up affectively and emotionally with where my head (laughs) was already prepared to be. I remember walking into that church. My wife was laughing because she was saying, oh, yeah, in small town Ontario, in this little dinky town, you're going to find some preacher who's going to convey Christianity in your style, Bonhoeffer, Tillich, whatever. Well, I went to the church, and the preacher was a product of the Toronto School of Theology. He he built his sermon around the critique of the letter rather than the spirit, the confusion of our faith with the stained glass and the beautiful buildings and the Gothic arches and all of this. It was a very good sermon, actually. So, But that was the start. I, I returned to church. Walking back into church and hearing the same hymns, I was weeping. It felt like coming home. I felt like prodigal son. I felt welcomed. And it was pretty intense for a while. It was pretty intense. I would have to say I was in the paranoid schizoid position. It had a magical element to it. I was praying. I was wearing a cross around my neck, which I still wear. And gradually it settled down. I moved back into the depressive position, but I needed the help of priests who are men with men who wear dresses. <laughs> I was trying to become a father. It scared the hell out of me. How am I going to father this boy? So I had to take him to men I called father, and I would kneel at the rail to receive the Eucharist, and the priest would put his hand on my little boy's head and bless him. I love this, but as I settled down and became comfortable with being a father and so on I found I needed church less and less I drifted away I would I would attend at Christmas and Easter but but my home is full of crucifixes if it depends on how you define prayer if you define prayer as thoughts turned to God I guess I'm praying all the time because I'm constantly thinking about theological issues and and I'm constantly thinking about the words of Jesus and finding parallels. I mean, it seems to me that Jesus was the first psychoanalyst, in my, or the most brilliant psychoanalyst of all time. The whole theory of projection is right there. Why, why do you complain about a moat in your neighbor's eye when there's a beam in your eye, he said? You know, so much of psychoanalytic insight is there in the new testament it seems especially in the words of jesus and in saint paul so i became increasingly struck by these by these parallels
1: it's so wonderful to hear you sharing these experiences and it's also very touching uh, what what you share with with your father and, and the cross and how you came back in contact with your faith yes. i'm wondering how how has it been received by your psychoanalytic colleagues and have you had to sort of hide it? because now you speak very openly about it yes i do how is it received i think i'm luckier than the generation
0: of of guys uh, one generation older than me. We invited William Meisner, MDSJ. I think he was chair of psychiatry in Boston. He was a senior training analyst in Boston. We invited, one of the psychoanalytic institutes invited him and over lunch, and he had just written a wonderful book on psychoanalysis and uh, religion. And I, over lunch, I tried to get him to talk about psychoanalysis of religion. I persisted. I was irritating him. He was dodging me. Finally, he looked at me and he said, Professor Carvat, I have been invited to Toronto by a psychoanalytic institute to speak on psychoanalytic topics. If you wish me to speak on religious topics, have me invited by a religious organization and I will be happy to do so. Next subject. Okay, so this man wore two hats. He rode two different horses and he survived in the American psychoanalytic establishment by never mixing them. Okay, that's how he did it. Now, by the time it came to me, I didn't actually have to do that, or maybe I just am too stubborn. I wouldn't do it. My colleagues have always known this about me. The very atheistic classical Freudians, no doubt in private, they think it's uh, Carveth. obviously didn't have enough analysis. It's an unfinished analysis. That's probably what they think. But they're too polite to say so. They don't exactly roll their eyes and they don't sanction me. I I happen to be a very popular teacher in my institute and they need me (laughs) to do a lot of teaching. And so they, they tolerate it. I, I try to be fairly discreet about it.
1: I, I would like us to, to spend some time talking about the book that you wrote in 2013, mm-hmm. published through Carmack, The, the Still smaller Voice, Psychoanalytic Reflections on Guilt and Conscience. Right. Uh, in this book, you're arguing that, that we need help we need to help people, our patients, bear their guilt, not to eliminate it. And you make some important distinctions also between the reparatory guilt in individuals that's needed for sort of development of civilization versus the persecutory guilt. And, and you further write that, that a central ingredient of the conscientious practice of psychoanalysis involves knowing the difference between the conscience and the superego, that you have come to the conclusion that the only way out of persecution by the sadistic superego is through reconciliation with conscience. Yes. Could you speak a little bit about this important differentiation, and maybe also about the book, how it came to you to write this?
0: As a young man, I did not want to have to be good. I wanted to be bad. Well, I didn't want to be bad, exactly, but I wanted what I wanted. I did not want to say no to myself. I wanted self-gratification. And I sought it. And in seeking self-gratification, I was very selfish. I hurt people. Ultimately, I hurt myself. And I guess that's the point. Uh, I learned that as smart as I am, I'm not smart enough. No one is smart enough to be able to get away with it. I decided that ultimately nobody, nobody gets away with anything, even Donald Trump. I mean, it looks like he does, but if you put a person's life under the microscope, like if they came and lay on your couch four or five times a week, you would see that they're not getting away with anything. I realized I was paying too high a price for my ongoing effort to have my cake and eat it too. I did not want to lead a life of having to sacrifice impulses because they were wrong or out of loyalty to someone or whatever. I did not want to go straight, as they say. I didn't want to go straight. But I finally realized, I'm sorry, I have to go straight. I don't have to go straight because God says so, no, or the church says so, no. I have to go straight simply because anything else will end up hurting too much. You could say that I became a a, a very enlightened hedonist. The only way to ultimately find, and I don't like the word happiness, I much prefer inner peace. I want inner peace. And the only way I'm going to find that is by becoming a good man in my own eyes, not anyone else's. One of the wise things my father said to me when I was a kid was, son, there's only one person you have to live with 24 7, and that's yourself. Boy, was he right about that. Okay, so I realized that, you know, I have to start doing right so that I can see myself as a good man. And then I'll be able to sleep at night. And then I'll be able to have peace sitting in the garden in the sunshine. So I I decided, okay, well, well, what's the lesson there is you must reconcile with conscience. Because otherwise, your superego, which is pseudo-moral, it isn't really moral. It, it, it's cloaked in morality, but, but really it's a sadistic attacker. And it will go on persecute. I think of the superego as the devil, basically. It's demonic. It cloaks itself in a moral disguise, but it is out to destroy us. It's our enemy. And it will make our lives a living hell. That's the way I understand heaven and hell. These are states of the soul now. I'm not talking about a future, but I have been in hell and I have experienced moments of heaven, heavenly moments of grace, and uh, the way to escape from hell and access heavenly moments is by turning away from what's wrong and doing what's right. So it's a personal, I feel driven by personal experience into this position. And then clinically, I certainly see it with patients. I see it with my patients. They they have to stop. I, I, I don't moralize with them that I mean, I don't tell them that cheating on their wife is wrong. I don't tell them that going to to prostitutes is wrong. I don't tell them that stealing from the company is wrong. I, I wait sitting back in the bushes until I see what the consequences are of cheating on the wife or stealing from the company. I watch what happens. Every time you do that, the migraines come. Every time you do that the ulcers kick up. And I play a little naive. Seems like there's a connection between your being unfaithful to your wife and these terrible attacks of migraine headaches. Uh, the patient gradually begins to <laughs> comes to understand that the wages of sin are death or pain or sickness or um,
1: mistakes that lead to great losses. Whatever, that's what I point out. What led you to write the book? Obviously, you've been thinking a lot about this, but I'm just that you decided to write a book about it. A this book.
0: Well, that's an interesting thing. I, I was always a, a peer-reviewed journal article writer as an academic. I never wrote a book. Um, but I was in my late sixties when I wrote that book. I had. Progressed through the ranks. I had become a full professor because I published a fair amount, at least one or two big articles a year. But I didn't, I had an inhibition about, I never published my doctoral thesis. Uh, the idea of publishing a book intimidated me. And then a very strange thing happened in around 2011 or 12, or I guess 2011. I was teaching, I had this book by Eli Sagan on my bookshelf for many years. You know, you buy books, they've got great titles, they look good, you put them on the shelf, but you don't get around to reading them. One day, for whatever reason, if I want to move into the paranoid schizoid position, I would say that God led me to take that book off the shelf. I usually don't think that way or talk that way, but sometimes, anyway, I took the book down, I read it. It blew my socks off because Sagan had answered, addressed and answered many of the things that had puzzled me about Freudian theory bothered me for many years, especially the superego issues. And I started teaching his book to my students. And one day a student said, so who is this guy Sagan anyway? And I was embarrassed. I didn't know who he was really. So I went and did a search on the internet and I could find out nothing about him. He seemed to have no digital footprint at all. But finally, I came up with an address in New Jersey. So I wrote him a letter. And then a week or so later, I'm sitting in my office and the phone rings in this squeaky. Hello, Garbett, this is Eli Sagan. We started talking. We started having every second Sunday, we had a, a phone call for a couple of hours. I read through all of his big books and we talked about all of that. And then he was reading my stuff next thing i'm writing a book i needed some unfinished business with a father my father was a family doctor he, he he was a self-taught kind of intellectual guy but he wasn't the real deal sagan was the real deal you know he very impressive intellect he'd written all of these big books suddenly i'm writing a book i needed that identification i needed his blessing and boy, did he ever give me his blessing. Uh, he, we started to disagree. He made the distinction between superego and conscience. And it's like he threw the ball. I caught the ball. And I'm running with it. Okay? I'm running with it. And he's saying, slow down, slow down. Uh, you know, you don't, you're don't, you going too far. You're going too far with this distinction. You know, And he, he wasn't a trained analyst. He was a, an intellectual, but he was not a psychoanalyst. And I'm taking his distinction into psychoanalytic quarters. And he's thinking, no. And then suddenly, about three or four weeks before he died, I was up north, like he barely had a cell signal, but he got a message through to me. He he point, told me to read a particular chapter in Pelican's History of Christian Theology. He had come across St. Paul. St. Paul's distinction between the law and the gospel. And he had recognized that his own distinction was that, his distinction between conscience and superego was echoing that. And he realized that I was running with this because I had a Christian background as well as a psychoanalytic background. Somehow my reading of the New Testament had set me up to be ready to make that distinction and then, reading Pelican and so on had reinforced it. So that's how that's how I came to write the book. Eli started me off, and then, at the end, he gave me another push.
1: You're staying a little bit with law. Versus gospel and superego versus conscious. Uh, Just translate it a bit. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, my understanding of Jesus is precisely that he is an attacker of religion. He did a savage attack on the religion of his time, which happened to be Judaism, the, the, the temple. Man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. He was constantly violating the Jewish law for humane purposes. He was a critic of the superego, the law. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone, he says, to the mob who are stoning a woman caught in adultery. So Jesus is conscience rebelling against law. But For a time, I went overboard, and I joined Freud, Ferenczi, and Alexander, who said that the psychoanalytic cure is the complete elimination of the superego. For a while, I went for that, but then I came back to the gospel, because Jesus says, think not that I come to abolish the law and the prophets. I come to fulfill them, which I then interpret as our goal is to subordinate the superego to the conscience. The superego must be disciplined by the conscience. We still need a superego. We need a book of rules. We need to know the law. But the law has to be subordinated to the conscience.
1: Yeah. In your practice and with your patience or, or within yourself, the differentiation between the two, is there anything you can say as a technique, as a sort of help on the way for people. I think the simplest way to think about it is that
0: this, the, the conscience is governed by love. And it speaks in the language of love. Uh, and and there is a bite to conscience. But but at the same time as conscience is saying, Dawn, you're on the wrong path. I'm not sleeping well because my conscience is uneasy. You're on the wrong path, Don. But that voice is also my father who will welcome me home and kill the fatted calf, and there'll be a celebration because I heard him and I turned back onto the right path. So this is a loving conscience that want, I mean when he when he reproaches me for being on the wrong path, there are tears in his eyes because. He doesn't like reproaching the son he loves. It makes him very sad to have to to see that his son has gone off. And he is delighted to welcome me back. The superego is a said. One of my greatest personal images of the superego is from a great uh, film, Fanny and Alexander. Who's the f- filmmaker, the famous? Bergman. Film? Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. And so the two children, the boy and the girl, their father dies and their mother marries this stuffy Lutheran pastor of some kind, of the kind that, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child. And he likes beating the children. And I wish that Ingmar Bergman had done a close up on him when he's beating the children to reveal that he's got an erection because he's getting off on beating the children, because he's a sadist. That's my model of the superego. It speaks this moral language, but it really is fueled by the id. This is pure Freud. Freud said the superego is id aggression turned back against the ego. That's the the first layer of the superego, id hostility turned back on me. Second layer, internalization of the culture via the parental superegos, but what Freud fails to point out is that the culture that's internalized is racist, sexist, heterosexist, classist, etc. Freud gives us no critique of the contents of the superego, but it's basically ideological crap that fills the superego. You know, not entirely. Look, some people go to church, and and what do they hear in church? They hear, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Every once in a while, the superego says something coincident with conscience. And some people who are are, are particularly healthy people, they have a superego that is almost entirely indistinguishable from conscience. Hmm. That's a great situation to be in. You're hearing the right message from both superego and conscience because they coincide never perfectly. With humans, nothing is ever perfect, obviously. But uh, yeah, Mm. so I think think when you hear the hate in the voice, the moral voice, when you hear the cruelty, Mm. you know you're dealing with superego. Yes. I think and I've said too that patients depend on us to have a conscience. We mustn't moralize, we mustn't be super ego-ish with patients. My classical colleagues, they may disapprove of my Christianity, but they know that I they know that I know that I must not be super ego-ish with my patients. But mm the error that they fall into is because they've lost the distinction between superego and conscience mm. they, they they they've not they're not able to recognize that while we mustn't be superegoish we do need at times to be the voice of conscience we need to have a conscience and every once in a while we need to voice it
1: i think that's maybe where unions use the concept and the experience of the cell Jung also said you know that the He saw Christ, as uh, the the self, as an image of Christ. Uh, I'm not saying that I fully agree with him on this one. But But I I have to
0: say, I agree with your interviewee, Sean McGrath. I was very impressed with him. He's saying that uh, Jesus is not an archetype. I think, oh, you asked why I turned from Jung back to Freud. I think I forgot to say that even back then, I read Martin Buber's essay on Jung. And Martin Buber, as a religious Jew, he put his finger right on the same thing that McGrath put his finger on, that Jung, Jung is, is a Gnostic. And Gnosticism is a heresy for both Judaism and for Christianity. And when you, when you relocate God in the unconscious, you're relocating God in, in part of the self. And oh, I wish I could quote it exactly, but one of my most Favorite passages of all time is from G.K. Chesterton. And he's writing about what he calls the God within. He says, Of all possible gods, save me from the God within. He says, You all know how it works. Anyone who knows anyone from the higher thought center will know how it works. When Jones comes to worship the God within, What that means is that Jones comes to worship Jones. He says, you know, Christianity
1: came to get us to worship the God without, not Mm. the God within. I I agree with you. There's a lot to one can critique, but I, I also believe that it's important to differentiate because Jung did never say that there's a God within. He said there's an image, there's an imago Dei, there's an image of God within yeah, the yeah so there's there's that's there's okay. that but but then of course you know taking literally Jungianism and many of those ideas become yeah they become problematic and there is something okay. about sort of psychologizing religion and turning it on into navel gazing that can happen but i do must say in my experience okay. in my practice it's uh, i think that the union analysis done right helps people that's time to find back and deepen their faith, you know? Okay,
0: okay. But you're quite right. I I respect what you're saying. You're absolutely right. And the same thing can be said about the Freudian tradition. People take Freud literally. I'm not a Lacanian, but but one thing I appreciate about Lacan is that he metaphorizes psychoanalysis. It's not about that stupid little piece of flesh called the penis. It's about the phallus which is a very important symbol. So he metaphorizes psychoanalysis and that's very important. Once having read Lacan, your understanding of Freud is quite different. So I see the same would apply to you. You can take it literally or you can uh, treat it more metaphorically and symbolically.
1: Moving forward to recent times, in 2020, you published a paper, Psychoanalysis is Spirituality. And in that paper, you write that while others fail to practice what they preach, we psychoanalysts refuse to preach what we practice. We disguise our ethic of love beneath a medical facade. And further, you write that we lie to ourselves and others and call it mental health when it really amounts to salvation. Yes, yes. And uh, you, you, you're right, you, you described as a conversion. Well, I, I was asked
0: just recently to speak to the Ottawa Psychoanalytic Society, and I'm, I've been thinking about the topic, and the title that I've come up with so far is Transformation, Clinical Psychoanalysis as Deconstruction and Conversion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the title of the paper. Two things, deconstruction and conversion. Well, let me start with the the, the conversion, because that's what you're asking. I mean, I think that in a deep psychoanalysis, and I think this is a difference between psychoanalytic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. In psychoanalytic psychotherapy, we do a lot of things uh, to help people cope with their anxiety, to relieve their depression, and so on and so forth. But it's more like repairing a house rather than, gutting it and rebuilding it from the inside out. I think I think of a deep psychoanalysis as something like gutting an old house and rebuilding it from inside out. So we're talking about a, a, tra- a radical transformation from, if I want to speak in religious terms, from Adam to Christ, old Adam, the old sinner, to Christ. That's a conversion. Um, I think there's a perfect correspondence here between that and trying to help a person, as Freud says, transcend narcissism in favor of object love. I mean, all these people who think they're in love, but the person they're in love with simply stands for the self they were. Like the old guy who falls in love with a young woman. She just represents his lost youth. He doesn't even know who she is, except their body is smooth Instead of wrinkly, the self that I am or the self I one day would like to be, why is she involved with him? Because to help a person move out of that field of narcissism into recognizing that other people are actually real and beginning to actually care about their welfare, that's a a conversion. I mean, that's a radical personality transformation. To help a person move out of the paranoid schizoid state where life is a jungle and it's kill or be killed, that amazing show, Succession. I mean, that show is about life in the paranoid schizoid position, also life in late-stage capitalism. It's like rolling over a rock. That is a sinful—that's what sin looks like. That's what hell looks like where we're trying to help save people from these hellish states, and they will continue to send themselves to hell unless they decide to convert and be good. And we're trying to help them achieve that, not by sermonizing, not by wagging our fingers, not by reproaching, but by closely analyzing the consequences for them. Of their own choices, their own paths that they're choosing, we help them see how they're putting themselves in hell, which opens up for them the option to stop putting themselves in hell. So yeah, I I, I think I think we are out to convert our patients, but in a very subtle, and respectful, and patient way. Mm.
1: I think when we use that word, many people associate it also to the religious conversion. And I'm thinking maybe at least myself, I'm thinking of something very radical. You know? And it can be a conversion, but our work is so slow and it takes such a long time. And But but, but conversion is still what that's the word you would use for it. Somehow it's a slow conversion. Not a slow
0: conversion, a gradual conversion. Yeah. But I think it deserves still, it's not a sudden conversion. It's not like like Paul on the road to, to Damascus, but it's but it ends up being, I think it's it can be so profound, profound, it deserves the word because when you switch from an entirely self-interested approach to life to grab grasping the need for sacrifice, to actually be able to sacrifice your self-interest out of loyalty and commitment to others, to say no to yourself, the ability to say no to yourself, which is the ability to be a good father to yourself or a good mother to yourself. No, I'm not going to let myself have that pleasure or gratification because I have loyalty and commitment over here.
1: You're a very different person now. Well, a few months ago, I very much enjoyed the, the podcast interview or conversation that you had on psychoanalysis on and off the couch with Harvey Schwartz. And at the end of that, he he tries to summarize some of your insights and he uses the words, uh, okay, if I understand you right, he says, an advanced civilization requires each of us to care about each other and care about our impact on on each other. And then you say as a response, I would make it more challenging than that by saying that the advance of civilization depends on finally coming to understand what was meant in the Judeo-Christian doctrine of the fall of man. You also empathize there in the importance of us needing to know how sinful we are as human beings. I meant what I said. I mean, I agree with him, of course. He's right that we do need to
0: develop a capacity to actually transcend narcissism and begin to care about the welfare of others and the welfare of the society and so on. But I do believe that we need to be able to acknowledge our sinfulness. I always laugh because many years ago, I found a letter to the editor in the Toronto Globe and Mail. And I clipped it out and I put it in a file folder in the library for my students to read. It's a woman and she lost any religious interest she'd had as a teen. But now she's a mother of two young girls and she's not happy with the level of moral education that her daughters are receiving in the public school system. So to supplement that, she's been going, taking the girls around to various churches, looking for a church that has a nice nursery school that would teach the kids. Okay, but you know, wherever she goes, the pastor or the minister or the priest in their service, they're all telling her she's a sinner and she isn't. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm thinking, Here's a woman who's convinced she's not a sinner. I can't get through two seconds without knowing I'm a sinner. I mean, I'm always sinning one way or another. Fortunately, as I've gotten older, the sins are are diminishing in significance, but I'm still a sinner. I'm not just a sinner, but I am a sinner. That is what it is to be human, is to be a sinner. But in today's society, this culture of narcissism, people can't stand it. They get enraged at the idea that they should have to acknowledge. I think it's because of, of splitting, frankly. I think that especially very narcissistic or borderline kinds of people they can't acknowledge any sin because everything becomes totalized. If they acknowledge a little bit of sin, pretty soon it's gonna go like ink in the water and they're gonna be all bad and then they'll have to kill themselves. So they can't admit a little bit of badness because it will be totalized. Hmm. So that's what I meant. I think the ability to move into that space where you have a very jaundiced view of yourself, a very suspicious view of yourself, I hear what I say, you know, and then I think a part of me and my wife, my wife has even more of a jaundiced view of me than I do, and so she helps with this. Really, Don? You just said that really?, uh, come on, you have to be suspicious of yourself because we're liars. We are liars, and we're selfish, and we can make great progress. but never total progress the devil is always whispering in
1: our ear the importance to to realize that we are sinners but i'm, I'm also reminded of what you just shared about the patient of yours who feels he is he's he a bad person he's a bad
0: yeah he's totalized it right that's the differentiation a little, yeah let's avoid that that's another another split i mean Look, some people are, are very bothered by an excessive sense of sinfulness. Certain psychotic patients, a guy was found living in a cardboard box in a ravine here in Toronto. He'd gone off his meds, and he, be, he believed he stank. He was a stinker. He had to retreat from human society because he gave off such a foul smell. Now, living in a cardboard box for months, he probably did start to smell. But that's a psychotic delusion of of foulness, right? The patient I mentioned is not nearly that severe. It's a mild neurotic level delusion of having been a disappointment or being rotten at the core. It's not on the psychotic level, but it's all just a matter of degree. So no, I mean, I don't want, when I say we have to admit that we are sinners, I don't want us walking around beating on ourselves. I want us to have a forgiving attitude towards ourselves. I want us to have an ironic attitude, irony towards oneself. Being able to laugh at ourselves and see the ridiculousness of all of our stances and self images and whatever, our theories of ourselves, it's a more forgiving, ironic, humorous. Of course, I'm still tempted, etc. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'm also just thinking about this. To be a sinner without belief, or if you're a sinner without God, it's also us. Maybe then helping people, but to, to a pretty empty space for some people. Yeah to realize this sinful nature or like, but, but to move from there to the more forgiving, yeah. Oh,
0: absolutely. You don't want people facing their sinfulness unless at the same time they see the clear possibility of, of a father welcoming, welcoming them home like the prodigal son. Yeah, you're sinning, but you could be good. You you could love yourself. You could be loved by the people you care about. Why don't you avail yourself of this available love? No, I would never wanna point someone's sinfulness out to them if they don't have an image of another life of being lovable to themselves and to others, of course. Mm-hmm yeah but i don't frame it as god i I don't i don't have any supernatural sense of a god if someone asks me nowadays don do you believe in god or don't you i say yes i do and no i don't and then they say you can't have it both ways i say to them you haven't understood freud the freudian revolution is that we are all split we are all contradictory and of course in saying that, he's in touch with the New Testament because the New Testament says we're all split between old Adam and Christ. So here again, Christianity and Freudianism completely correspond. There is no unitary self. Freud was embarrassed about this. He was he was ashamed of his interest in numerology, and he of course projected his own those those kinds of mystical. Onto you, and then he got rid of you because he couldn't own that as a part of himself. So I have a paranoid schizoid position. I visited frequently, and when I went for surgery, I was praying before the surgery, and I woke up, and, and there was a Muslim family, and of course the grandparents, the aunts, the like. There must have been fifteen people in the space next to me in the recovery room, and I'm coming out of morphine, and they're all praying in Arabic. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm so glad they're there. It was like I was praying with them. And I felt the presence of God, but I don't believe in God. But apparently, I do believe in God. Okay, mm-hmm. I do and I don't. That's the honest position on this, it seems to me.
1: Well, that reminds me a little bit of the position that your fellow Canadian Jordan B. Peterson seems to take today, someone who speaks more and more about, uh, yeah, Christianity and really explores these questions in depth. I don't know if you have any, have you had any thoughts about him? I mean, it's very complicated.
0: I, I, I supported his rebellion against attempts by the university or the society to legally impose this new way of speaking when it comes to trans issues. I thought he was very courageous to speak up about that. He was invited uh, to give a a talk at at the, the university where my son is doing his doctorate. And to my son's horror, there was a huge group of people uh, trying to shut him down and deprive him of free speech at the university, to my son's horror, it was the social work department largely that was trying to shut him down. That's to me horrific. I'm I'm an old-fashioned supporter of free speech. A university is a place for free speech. You may hate what the guy is saying, but you defend his right to say it. So I'm with Jordan on that. But I. Don't like his obscurantism. I mean, he talks about what he calls the cultural Marxists. He never defines what he means. He doesn't have any adequate understanding of what Marxism is or the history of Marxism. He doesn't seem to understand that Marxism is an expression of Messianic Judaism, uh, it has its roots in 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 the prophetic biblical tradition you know i think he there's a fair amount of ignorance he's a smart guy in many ways but there's a he's insufficiently responsible as a scholar in various ways in my opinion i haven't made a close study of him
1: yeah i think he for for us unions if i can speak so i think he's been been the most important person somehow on the field the last 10 15 years because he's very often referring to you you know and i think he's also somewhere close to Jung's position in his uh, wrestling with Christianity and with the Christian faith. Right. He, he doesn't see himself as a Christian, but it seems like he's very much, especially lately, engaging deeply with these questions. And he did this also Bimlik uh, Biblical series, uh, which is available on YouTube, which I, I did find profound and, and, and uh, intriguing because he does have that, which I also feel like you have, he has this capacity to use analogies and to make these yeah. stories come alive. And and, and, and And that's a beauty. Well, he's a real presence, and he's had a a
0: big influence, maybe largely for the good on a lot of young people. I'm going to say something that revealed my own lingering sinful narcissism. If Jordan was really smart, he would come to me for analysis. (laughs) I think I could help him. Maybe he could help me. Maybe he could help me move in that Jungian direction I have failed to move in. I uh, think it would be very interesting dialogue.
1: I am sure. I am sure. And it's. But only- I would have
0: to be the analyst. He would have to be the patient. <laughs>